when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who can't wait until Election Day when America's voting machines will somehow throw the presidency to Ralph Nader. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Simone Sanders, a senior advisor to Joe Biden and former national press secretary for Bernie Sanders. She's also the author of a perfectly timed book that came out in mid-May called No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. Simone, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Best title ever for a book. I wish I had written one that talked like that. I want to get into your book, um, but I think we probably should talk. There's so much topical news today going on. And uh Vice President Biden uh, certainly talked about a lot of things today. Um, so I'd love to just sort of get started. I want to get to some of the others. But how are you looking at the, the landscape now? We just had the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff apologize. Um, there seems to be a different uh, thing coming from the Trump administration day, whether it's supporting the Confederacy or putting the SS into a, a tweet, which I think this is like a lot of this political stuff goes by. But how are you looking at the landscape right now? Uh, working for the Biden campaign? Look, I think how we see uh, this election and this race right now is a question of leadership. The, and I think what we've seen over the last, I mean, we would argue this entire primary process and now going into the general, but especially over the last week and a half, you've seen Vice President Biden step into and fill the role of leadership that Donald Trump has abdicated, whether that's when the Friday where the unrest was at the height in this country. And Donald Trump went to the Rose Garden to give a speech and didn't even mention Minneapolis, George Floyd, or what was happening. But earlier that day, he had tweeted about uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And the juxtaposition of that was uh, Vice President Biden coming out and giving a very, very powerful statement that spoke to the pain that many folks across this country were feeling, but also gave us a roadmap forward. Uh, again, that following Monday, you saw Donald Trump standing at the podium again, saying he's the president of law and order. He's an ally of peaceful protesters. Meanwhile, on a split screen, peaceful protesters were being gassed right outside of the White House, clearing a way for his photo op. 
Um, so I think what we've seen the day after that, you saw Joe Biden go to a podium in Philadelphia and speak directly, give a presidential address, speak directly to the American people, um, and understood that what this moment that we're living through is not happening in a vacuum. It comes on top of more than 100,000 death, coronavirus deaths, so on top of more than 42 million people filing for unemployment. Many of those deaths, many of those jobless are African-American and Latino in this country. So he has rightly, we feel like from the beginning of his candidacy, diagnosed this moment that we're in and the soul of the nation rebuilding the backbone of the country and uniting the country is something we're going to continue to themes we're going to carry throughout this general election. You know, the pandemic is something you cannot predict, obviously. And the rea- mm-hmm. and you couldn't predict the reaction that Trump would have to it, which is to say inaction. Um, but but at the same thing with these recent protests. Um, was it surprising for you as, you know, you, you all, you can't like, at this moment in time, you'd probably be fighting off a million attacks by Trump on Facebook and elsewhere else. And we're going to get into that at the end, talking about digital. But this moment right now with these protests sort of following the pandemic, and now the pandemic's kind of back. People are talking about these numbers going up rather substantively. Look, I think that, well, obviously, um, we didn't realize we would be campaigning in a general election during a pandemic and we would be at home, for lack of a better term, and campaigning virtually. But I guess I, I guess the way I'd answer that question is what this moment kind of what we're seeing in this moment and what it tells us is that um, Donald Trump has seemed unable to rise to the occasion. And it's not just this unrest. It is the pandemic. You know, today we put out a reopening, um, you know, Biden's reopening plan, like his pathway to reopen the economy safely. Uh, And we'll we'll have a jobs uh, plan and an economy piece coming up in the next week and a half or so. Donald Trump has 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 been unable to to do just that. He has not provided the American people a roadmap. And I think that's what people are seeing reflected in polling. Now, I believe polls don't vote and I don't care what the polls say. We still have to continue to do the work in the states. And we have a state specific strategy to get us to 270. But I, I do think that the American people are responding to Trump's character. And in 2016, his character and how he would govern was just a theory. Right. He's a bad person or he, you know, he he's less he's not empathetic. Some people feel he's a bad person. Some people say Donald Trump is very lovely. You know, who's to say? Uh, but he definitely, he lacks some empathy. He lacks did you just leadership. do a some people say? <laughs> I, just, I did a some people say. You did a some, all right, okay. I did a some people say. But now his character and his temperament has directly affected the American people's lives. One could, not even one could argue the facts are laid bare. Um, because the Trump administration did not act in January or February to help mitigate the effects of the pandemic, we are now in a you know economic crisis on top of a public health crisis we are officially in a recession the trump administration didn't act because trump was concerned about the markets and his poll numbers his temperament his character that has him so self-centered is one could argue is the reason that we have found ourselves in this moment the unrest you know donald trump is concerned about you know how he looks projecting strength um, and, and not speaking to the pain that Americans are feeling. So I just think this is, uh, we believe that this election will in fact be a referendum on Trump, but we also have to have a plan forward. And that's what we've heard from folks that we talked to on the campaign trail, whether it's virtual or actual, what will Joe Biden do as president? And we are very laser focused on making sure we're communicating that. So one of the themes, obviously, in these protests is police brutality. And, you know, uh, it, it's been an interesting attempt by Trump trying to put the defund 
police on onto Biden. So this is something that you all answered really quickly because it was, you know, there's these various attempts to try to, there was Joe Biden is addled. That didn't seem to stick as well. You guys have, have sort of been fending off attacks that haven't really hit a lot. Are you Have you felt like this period of um, political campaigning has been good for Biden? Like Biden, the basement seems to be working rather well, although he's been out of the basement, obviously, recently. So look, I think that the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself has had a strategy of a very long time to try and smear Vice President Biden in a way to uh, not necessarily gain votes away from him, like to take votes away from him, because I don't think Trump seriously believes that, uh, you know, Joe Biden's base would consider supporting Donald Trump, the large swath of his base. But I do think that he believes that these he has uh, these attacks could um, sour voters on Vice President Biden and in, in a way bolster President Trump. But what we've seen from the beginning of this campaign, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's, um, you know, Hunter trying Biden. to suggest Hunter Biden, whether it's trying to suggest that Vice President Biden isn't um, attuned to racial sensitivities, like ha 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 for Donald Trump to make that assertion. I mean, goodness, <laughs> read the room. So it hasn't worked. And the reason, frankly, it has not worked is because voters truly feel like they know Joe Biden. We saw this in the primary, you know, uh, every single week, it was a different thing. And voters were like, no, we know Joe. And the idea that voters have in their mind about Joe Biden has directly contributed to the inability of these conspiracy theories and these smears to stick. Mm -hmm. So now I do believe that the, you know, who am I to assess the Trump campaign strategy? I don't know if there even is a full strategy, but I think in what he's doing around this tough guy, tough man attitude, whether it's I'm not wearing a mask because masks aren't manly or whether it's, you know, I am your law and order president, let me turn the military on American citizens. It's not working. It is, in fact, backfiring. And now we have a conversation where we are uh, at a point in the United States where the large swaths of the American public are looking to have a conversation about reform and they're looking for solutions. And I think police reform is a conversation that many folks have been having for a number of years. Now the conversation has grown mainstream and it is not a conversation. It is a move to action. And as Vice President Biden has said, we need police reform right now. And we need criminal justice reform. But if we only do police and criminal justice reform, we're only addressing part of the issue. We need economic justice. And we have to um, make sure that there's equity across the board to education, to opportunity, to housing. He did an op-ed in USA Today that spoke just to that. And I think that Donald Trump cannot thread that needle. Like there's there's a conversation about Donald Trump doing a, a big um, a, a, a speech to calm the nation. No one believes that he is the man to calm the nation. It's just unbelievable. But on contrast to that, Joe Biden, it is extremely not only believable, but voters have seen it with their own eyes. He has done it time and time again throughout this election cycle, rising to that occasion. And I think that does that benefit us? Sure. But that doesn't mean we still don't have to actively communicate to voters about what it is Vice President Biden is for and what his plans are as president. All right. Well, I want to get to you in a second, but I do want to finish up uh, on the political stuff. Obviously, these these protests have been around uh, the treatment of African-Americans, especially African-American men by police. But it's sort of the broader question about social justice. You were talking about economic justice. Does, he has talked about uh, nominating a woman for vice president. Is it almost a certainty at this point that he will be nominating an African-American woman? No, we don't know who's going to nominate. We don't know. If, if if Joe Biden were here, he'd tell you, I do not know 
who I am going to pick as my running mate. So I think what you can absolutely expect, though, is that his running mate will be someone that can mirror the relationship he and President Obama had, someone who will be a good governing partner, because the task before a Biden administration will be immense, will be large, and he will need a partner in order to take it on. So I just, I, I think that much ink has been spilled about what this moment means for uh, the running mate, but I, I just, I urge people to understand that there's a process here and we have to let the process play out. But could it be a black woman? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think ink is filled because of his age and or, or and and other the idea that this is a partner. This is some which I think uh, Vice President Biden has Biden has talked about this idea that it's more than just a vice president. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's something that's very important to him. I mean, if there's one thing he knows a lot about, it's the vice presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he knows exactly what he's looking for. He knows the type of partner that he would want. The question on the table is, has he identified exactly who that partner is? And the answer is not yet, but he will soon. Do you have a preference? When is it? <laughs> when, when is soon? What is soon? If I did have a preference, I would not be sharing it. Okay. Uh, number one. But two, when I think he said it himself that we look forward to having um, an announcement at the beginning of August, uh, if not before. So folks, stay tuned. Okay. Mm-hmm. Summer blockbuster, running mate. 2020. <laughs> Stay tuned. Like, we're going to look away. We have nothing else to do, Simone. Um, <laughs> so I want to get into sort of your role. Uh, you're the National Press Secretary for Bernie Sanders. You move here to, as senior advisor to Biden. Then I'm going to get in your book in the next segment. But what do you see as your role? What do you, what do you look as your portfolio on this campaign? Well, look, I am a senior advisor. Mm-hmm. And I support and I advise the our political shop, our political strategy, as well as our communications shop and our communication strategy and messaging. I serve as a, a spokesperson for the vice president. I have a television hit tonight. And I, I have viewed my role here. I mean, my portfolio encompasses everything from young people to progressives to women to, yes, African-American voters, but also how are we communicating to folks? Where are we going? Uh, so, I mean, and I, I, and when we were on the road, we're not, we're technically not really on the road right now. Mm-hmm. I travel with the vice president. So I, you know, I view, I'm a team player here. So I like to tell people that a senior advisor means I do it all. And that, that is, I think that's the most accurate description. And, and you, you, what kind of impact are you looking to have? Because I want to talk in the next segment about, no, you shut up and getting seeking truth to power, but actually having power. But talk to me about you. How do you look at what you think your biggest impact is here? Well, look, I think I, I came to the Biden campaign and I decided to join the campaign because I believed in Vice President Biden's theory of the case. And I think he correctly, as I noted earlier, diagnosed what America is collectively currently going through well before anyone realized it. You know, when he said, I'm running for president, we're in a battle for the soul of the nation, people mocked him. They laughed at him and told him that he was out of touch with what was happening. Um, He was making a general election argument in a primary with some very strong contenders, and he was missing it. And over the last year and a half, I think it has been confirmed more in more ways than one that he was absolutely right. And uh, I felt that viscerally in my bones that, yes, we are in a battle for the soul of the nation. And that is why I want to go on the campaign trail. And I think the impact that I've been able to have is, you know, I have the ability. I work with some really, really just amazing women, like our campaign manager, General Mally Dillon, folks like Anita Dunn, uh, Kate Bedingfield, Julie Chavez Rodriguez and Karine Jean-Pierre have joined our team. Like Natalie Quillen, the list goes on. Like I work with some really amazing women, Aaron Wilson, our political director, Ashley Allison, our coalition director. Like I work with really amazing women. And I think 
my contribution to the space is I am by far the youngest senior advisor. Um, no shade to my other senior advisor colleagues. And I just, I just bring a different perspective than um, someone else in the room would bring because of my age, because of my background, because of where I, I come from. And I think that's a strong and powerful contribution. And I'm grateful that I work in a place where we do work collaboratively. There's no one person that comes in and says, this is how it's going to be, Jack, everybody get in line. You know, it is kind of a, this is what we're doing, but do people have thoughts? Is there a way we, should we tweak something? Should we do something else? And I think that's why we were able to be so successful in the primary and why I think we'll be successful in this general election. All right, we're here with Simone Sanders, who's a senior advisor to Joe Biden and the author of a new book uh, came out in mid-May, No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we get back, we'll be talking about the book and uh, how Simone got where she was. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Simone Sanders, who's a senior advisor to Joe Biden and the author of a book, No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. Uh, Simone, talk a little bit about your background, because I think, you know, you, you jumping from the Sanders campaign to the Biden campaign was a real, uh, like, people were sort of surprised. Why don't you talk <laughs> a little bit about your journey? Because you, you're very young. You're, you're extraordinarily young. Um, talk a little bit about your journey to getting where you are and how you think about yourself as a political operative. So I'm 30. And uh, I am from uh, in Nebraska, mm -hmm. uh, North Omaha, Nebraska, to be specific. And I moved to Washington, D.C. in December. Hmm, no, in November of 2014, after working a governor's race in the 2014 cycle where you couldn't even utter health care, let alone Obama. So mm -hmm. in a red state. So it was a it was a it was a very good experience. <laughs> and I moved to D.C. and I worked for a consumer advocacy think tank in the global trade division. I worked for Public Citizens Global Trade Watch for Lori Wallach for a number of months. And I came to DC because I wanted to do national politics. I had been working in politics for a while, even though I had just graduated while I was in school. 
I worked for a firm that did a lot of different kind of races, mostly state and local. So I've worked obviously a governor's race. I've worked uh, judges races. I did state legislative races. I've done stuff on reservations, um, mayoral races. But I moved to D.C. because I wanted to do like national politics. And I didn't think I would hit it big as a Democrat in Omaha, Nebraska. Right. Probably not. What it, what got you into politics? What was the thing that got you interested in it? Because there's a certain thing around political wonks and you fit the bill of a wonk quite well. <laughs> I'm a wonk. You're a wonk. What got me into politics was um, power. You know, I I found myself watching TV or participating in the community and understanding that, you know, politics is nothing but a bunch of messages strung together that some people in a room decide on. And then a campaign, if you will, is nothing but folks, you know, thinking of different ways to communicate the message that some people in a room decided on. That's basically what it is. And then when you're an elected official, it's about, you know, how to basically make good on the promises of your messages for lack of a better term, and then govern, and then, you know, some other crazy things happen. Well, when it comes to the messaging, I saw early on that the people that put the message together were not representative of me. They were not oftentimes women. They weren't people of color. They definitely weren't little bald black girls from Nebraska. They oftentimes weren't people from the Midwest. And the message is where the power is. So I, you know, thought as a young person, one of the most powerful things I could be in the world was a politician, frankly, or or a, a judge, because judges hold folks' lives in their hand. Politicians make the laws that, you know, govern our lives. But I realized, actually, that it's the people behind the politicians that are some of the most powerful people, because those are the people that help craft the message. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me into politics, and I got into communications. Right. So you're not, you do not look like everybody else in the business you're in. Now, there's lots of, there's a lot of very different people in politics, but rising up through it, you know, this book, you you say speaking truth to power, you know, the idea of no, you shut up. You're in a unique position that you have to be doing that, saying something like, no, you shut up. Yes. Yes, I have to, because, uh, well, first of all, my book is called No, You Shut Up because somebody told me to shut up mm-hmm. on national television. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, you shut up. Uh, <laughs> it is my turn to speak. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's un- I think it is changing now, right? Yeah. Like this election cycle, there were more women, more women of color running right. things on the ballot. And of course, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, 2018, more women, um, a, the most, most diverse class of Congress ever. Um, on, the, on the Democratic side. On the Democratic ahead. side. On the Republicans, yeah. my, our Republican friends still need to do a little work, okay? Mm-hmm. They're not there yet. But at all. Not at all. Not even close. And it's, it's <laughs> a travesty. It's a travesty. Yeah. But I, uh, so while it is changing, which is great, there's still a lack of not just representation, but a diversity of thoughts and ideas mm-hmm. at, at, the, at the top, at the top. And whether the top is, you know, a presidential campaign or the top is a governor's office or the top is, are the campaign arms of any of the Democratic committees, there's a lack of, of visible people of color who are in positions of power. And part of that is because, you know, you don't get the job if you don't have the experience. Well, uh, you know, for a long time, we, and by, by I mean we, I mean specifically women of color, but people of color, period, Black people, we were not getting the jobs. And so how can, I, I can't be the, you know, the deputy campaign manager on the presidential campaign if I've never been a, you know, a, a, a political director mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. And so part of it is we have to build a pipeline. And I think how I view, I mean, obviously, like I am here to get Joe Biden elected as a 46th president of the United States of America. That is my mission right now. 
But in everything I do, my own personal mission is to make sure I leave the door open so there are more young Black women and women of color that come behind me that don't have to jump through the hoops that I have to jump through, that can go to work and work with in a diverse environment of folks that look like them from various backgrounds. Uh, and I think that's frankly what folks like Donna Brazile, Mignon Moore, Leah Daughtry, Yolanda Caraway, uh, Susan Rice, people forget mm -hmm. that Susan Rice was working on the same camp early on in the same campaigns as um, Donna Brazile and Mignon Moore. Mm -hmm. That's what they did for an entire generation of young people like myself, which give me the ability to even sit in the seat that I currently sit in. Right. So, but your, your first big seat, though, was with Bernie Sanders. I think yeah. uh, everyone I talk to when I say I'm talking to you is like, I want to know why she switched and what was the thinking. So talk really? a little bit about what, yes. what they said. I know. Yeah. They would, they, you know what? I'm always like, would you say that to a guy, a white guy? I no, don't they, would not, they would not say that to a white guy. They would not that is my answer, man. Simone. It That's is so I'm... infuriating. It's like, would you be so interested in my in my choice, in my in my career selections if I was a 32-year-old white man? No, you no. would not. No. So the reason they care, Kara, the reason mm -hmm. people are so intrigued is because they are not used to people that look like me making the decisions that I have made about my life. Mm -hmm. Well, talk about those decisions. Talk about why you were attracted to Bernie Sanders and why, you know, you you had a you gave a story at a book party. Is that about, you know, an argument you got with him in with him <laughs> yes. at the beginning of your uh, time? My first him. meeting with Senator Sanders, I got in an argument and I was like, he is not going to hire me. We aren't going to do this. What was Look, the argument I about? Was, it was about um, the economy and uh, criminal justice mm -hmm. and racial justice issues. We're having similar conversations uh, now, frankly, in 2020. Look, I went to work for Senator Sanders and I, I joined his campaign in 2015 because I believed in what he was talking about. You know, the whole premise of his 2015, 2016 campaign was we lived in a rigged economy kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance. And so because we lived in a rigged economy, we have to do this about climate change because of the rigged economy kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance. We have to do this about education because of this. So on down the line. And, you know, the kind of the stuff that Bernie was talking about were, frankly, the kind of things that uh, my friends and I were, were talking about at the time. So I, you know, going to work for his campaign was like a startup. But I ended up, um, you know, Jeff Weaver, I like to say he found me. He literally cold called me one day and that was Senator Sanders, 2016 campaign manager. And I meet with Jeff. I end up meeting with the communications director a couple months later or maybe a couple weeks later. And then I end up meeting with Senator Sanders. My meeting with Senator Sanders comes after um, his first run-in with Black Lives Matter activists at a conference called Net Roots Nation. We sit down, we have a conversation, we start talking about the economy. And as I note in the book, you know, Senator Sanders likes to, his favorite phrase is, you have a fundamental misunderstanding. <laughs> Bernie will regularly tell anyone. He's told, if you know Bernie Sanders. <laughs> that is a shutting down phrase, but okay. Yeah. At one point, look, Bernie Sanders will let anybody know that they have a fundamental misunderstanding. He said it, look, look speak to him long <laughs> enough, he will let you know you have a fundamental misunderstanding, Kara. And so Bernie, Senator Sanders told me at the time that um, I had a fundamental misunderstanding of what he was saying as it relates to the economy and mm -hmm. um, racial equity yeah. and whatnot. And I was just like, well, I disagree. And so we go into a back and forth. I end up telling him a, a story about how I was um, arrested in college and when the, for a trap, like I had a bench warrant because I had unpaid parking tickets. Didn't know I had a bench warrant. Officers pulled me over because I had a taillight out, run my license, bench warrant. They have to take me to jail. And when they, when they take me out of the cruiser car into the precinct, they tell me that they found marijuana on the floor of the car that I was in. Okay, well, I didn't have any marijuana. It wasn't my marijuana. They, 
they they pressured me to say yes that this was my marijuana. They tried to pin a marijuana charge on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I had a certain level of privilege. I worked, I was interning at the mayor's office at the time. I knew my city councilman. I was very involved in the community. So I basically told these officers to go take a, you know, go jump in the lake. This is not my marijuana. I'm not doing this. And also I would like my phone call to call, you know, the mayor's office because y'all got me messed up. Well, my, as I explained to the senator at the end of this conversation, it was, you know, the difference between me and another young black woman is the, the level of privilege and position that I had to call someone. But everyone does not have that. And the officers didn't care where I worked, who I worked for, where I went to school. All they saw me as was a young black girl. So for some people, it doesn't matter, you know, if they built generational wealth. If you are black or brown in this country, you still have to address the systemic race issues. So I, you know, we discussed that you should talk about race and the economy as intertwined issues that have to be addressed simultaneously. And he liked that. And, you know, that was a Thursday. By Tuesday, I had a job. And what did you, you know, that was quite a campaign. I mean, it was really, uh, it, it really did tap into a, a lot of what's going on now, this idea of, of enough is enough. You know, this is a game system. We're not going to get out unless we take power. Yeah, you know, look, I think, um, and I write about this in in my book, I talk about the, I I tell the story about No, You Shut Up in the introduction, and then I talk about how now is the time none of us should shut up. But we have to talk about who are we talking about. We have to define who we is. Mm -hmm. And in the front part of the book, I talk about that in the preamble to the Constitution, um, we the people, in order to form a more more perfect union, it was a very, uh, very narrow we. The we was rich white men. The, the we was not you or I, the we wasn't young people. You had to be rich and you had to be white, okay? You had to be a man, okay? If you were a rich white woman, no ma'am, it wasn't even your money, it was your husband's money. And so now we have expanded, throughout history, we've expanded the concept of we. And we are at a moment where we probably need to go further expanding who we is. And the way we expand the concept of we, the way we change the apparatus, as I call it, this political apparatus, and specifically the Democratic Party apparatus, is we have to infiltrate the apparatus. That is how you gain power. The operations of politics as we know it, they still flow through the Democratic and Republican Party. It has never, and if you don't believe me, Bernie Sanders ran for president on the Democratic ticket twice. He's an independent. Donald Trump has no real political ideology beside opening and ran for president on the Republican Party ticket because the power flows through these two apparatuses. And so the best way to expand the concept of we to gain power is to infiltrate the apparatus, whether that be by being elected official, by being a donor, by being an operative that help gets, helps get these folks elected. Like there are various ways to infiltrate the apparatus. And I guess that's what I do every day. That's mm-hmm. what I've been doing for years. Like I've just yeah. been working to infiltrate the apparatus. Right. Uh, so is that what the jump was from? I mean, it was it was it was it is it was an unusual jump. I, I think you would have noticed if it was a white guy, not as much as this. It was really a weird reaction I got from I people. just feel like, look, I, I haven't worked for Senator Sanders since June of 2016. Mm-hmm. I since Senator Sanders, I went and I worked at the convention. I worked for Priorities USA. I helped restart Priorities USA with Guy Cecil and Brian Fallon, who is now a member, a staunch member of the resistance, mind you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian Fallon is. Um, I helped expand their voting rights work. The Pride of USA Foundation is now the largest funder of voting rights litigation in the country. That's work I helped do. 
in terms of standing up a digital infrastructure for Democrats and doing all this very meticulous work, I helped do that work at Priorities USA. It's a super PAC, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then all that time I was a CNN political commentator. I taught two classes, one at Harvard, one at USC. When I decided to go back on the campaign trail this time around, though, I wanted to um, I wanted to go to a place where I had a respect um, and a relationship with the candidate and where I knew my voice could be valued, where I could make a difference, but where I connected and believed in what the theory of the case was. I found that in Vice President Biden. I did and not he, feel that at way the, about at the, the time, campaign. Yeah, he, at the time, he was not the front runner, and in fact, was he trailing. was not. He was he trailing was badly. You know, it was all Beto all the time. Oh, um, yeah. People yeah, said Beto was born for this, okay? Yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> he actually said that. Well, you know, Vanity Fair, let's be clear. Vanity <laughs> Fair, put the yeah. title in. So, yeah. I mean, I under, I... On one level, uh, I guess I could understand the the intrigue. But on another level, folks asking me why I decided to work for Joe Biden is exactly the issue. And it's exactly why we need more women of color Mm -hmm. uh, standing up and doing what it is they would like to do. Because if there were more black women uh, taking the reins of their, well, first of all, we have to make sure that there is, that the opportunity is there and available. And part of this is the opportunity was there and available for me. Mm-hmm. But if there were more black women, more women of color who were senior advisors and campaign managers and deputy campaign managers, and not just a handful, people wouldn't have these questions. So it's still foreign to people for women of color to, uh, take the reins of their careers. Nobody is asking. I mean, I have a list of colleagues. I have yet to have a person ask why this this white man over here decided to go do that. But everyone is, is, is makes it seem as though it is taboo or very strange or untoward for me to go make a decision about my career. Because at the end of the day, politics is just not a, it's not a game for me. This is what I believe in, but it's also how I pay my bills. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. This is my career. And if folks hear nothing else that I say, I think young people, uh, women especially, young women of color, people of color, period. We need to be very intentional about what it is that we do, Absolutely. the jobs that we take, and the trajectory of our careers. Because I can't be really helpful working in the closet down the street that nobody knows about, okay? Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. could be more helpful and more impactful doing what I'm doing right now. Right. So why Biden then? What was the thing that attracted you? Why Why was that your career choice from the your theory perspective? The theory of the case. I theory absolutely case. believed in what he was saying. Like it, it struck me because at the time I was a commentator on CNN and I had decided one day after a segment that I didn't want to sit on the sidelines, if yeah. you will, during this campaign yeah. and pontificate about the work that other people were doing. And when I sat down with Vice President Biden, he said to me, he said, you know, I didn't want to go through this election cycle thinking what would have happened if I would have ran for president. I didn't want to sit on the sidelines. And I'm like, me too. Me too. Okay, I'm with you here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, he connected with me. I mean, I went for a meeting that should have only been 30 minutes. I was there for two hours. It was like I had known Joe Biden for five years. And we, I respect him. I feel very blessed to work for him. But I also know he respects me. And he values my voice. And that I could have not picked a a better thing to do than work to get him elected. I really couldn't. All right. We're here with Simone Sanders. She's a senior advisor to Joe Biden and the author of No You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. When we get back, we're going to finish up talking about how you run a campaign these days, not just during a pandemic, but in this incredibly noisy media environment and what it's important to break through, especially when you have the troller in chief as president of the United States. 
We're here with Simone Sanders, a senior advisor to Joe Biden. She's written a book called No You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. Donald Trump never shuts up, uh, Simone. <laughs> and he uses Twitter and other ways to talk, either whether he's at rallies, but often in a digital way. How do you get heard in this environment, both as uh, a, a, an operative like yourself, a woman of color, a candidate? What is... How do you look at the scene right now? Because it's so noisy and so loud and it's so reductive. So when you're thinking about taking power, how do you, or speaking truth to power, where is it? Well, look, I, I actually think, and if I could call it a strategy, but I guess on some level it is a strategy. Part of the president's strategy is to distract. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's all he knows it. it's like it, it. He knows that people are going to take the bait of his, of his distraction, no matter what it is. So some of this is an indictment on the press corps, on the political press corps of 2020. It is absolutely an indictment because every time Donald Trump says something, you cannot shift your coverage to cover the crazy thing he said. I watched way too many segments about um, the 75 year old gentleman that was assaulted by the police officer about Antifa. Okay, it wasn't even about the protest or why he was out there protesting. There were segments about Antifa and what the president said about Antifa. And it's just made up. And so part of the way I think, um, if I, like from a campaign perspective, that we can and have been breaking through is we have to run our race and not respond to the shiny objects. And there are lots of shiny objects to respond to, but we have to stay laser focused on what our message is. And I think for folks who are looking to break through in that moment, whether you're, I mean, because there are other races this cycle, whether you're a Senate candidate or a House candidate or you are running for like dog catcher, it is important that you communicate your message and you run your race because Donald Trump, this is his, you know, again, his, his strategy as we've, as we've identified, he did this in 2018, you know, in the midterm elections, we, everybody else wanted to talk about healthcare and he was sending troops down to the border and, and he wanted to talk about care bans. but Democrats didn't take the bait in 2018. Their message locally and when they went out was about health care. Even though I sat on cable news panels or my Republican friends on the panel said, oh, Democrats want to want to open the borders and they're running on open borders. And I'm like, nobody is even talking about the border. We're all mm-hmm. talking about health care. So we need to continue to make sure we're talking about the economy. We are talking about still health care and that we are talking about that this unrest that has gripped the country is not happening in a vacuum. And it is a conflation of a number of different things that we have to address at this moment. Do not, we can't have Donald Trump's conversation. Mm-hmm. And yet he is very adept at using Facebook and, and Twitter. And uh, Twitter is, I think, the loud version of it. But Facebook has been a strategy. And today there was a story about uh, the Biden campaign focusing in on Facebook and its, uh, I think, abuse of, uh, of their platform uh, to let anything go. Yeah, I think I read a couple of stories that said we've gotten aggressive um, with with Facebook, but the reality is that Facebook and these companies they do have a responsibility here, and what you know this is not just a random escalation. These are conversations and outreach that we have been doing for a while. We have we have spoken up about Facebook a number of times, but we have a petition actually out right now urging Facebook to strengthen its misinformation rules. We know misinformation and disinformation are very real and they are, you know, the, the Russians are still are still out there attempting to meddle in our campaign, uh, in our elections, the Chinese. There's a true misinformation campaigns being run here. And we believe Facebook needs to change its misinformation rules. Like we are urging folks 
to step up and their voices in this moment and join us because Facebook has a job to do here and they are not doing their job. So what do you want them to do from from your perspective? What do you like as a campaign person, you can't ignore Facebook anymore or or whatever digital. I mean, I think they're the biggest game right now. Um, well, I mean, we're not ignoring them, right? Like in March, frankly, we outspent the Trump campaign on social media, on on across social media. We outspent them. So there's also this narrative that the Trump campaign has all this money and they're outspending Democrats up and down the ticket on the online. And, you know, we are on par with them, frankly. We don't have as much money as they do, but we got a lot of money and we're we're trying to use it effectively. But for Facebook specifically, look, we believe that they need to change its policies to crack down on misinformation in ads and ensure fair election. You know, I, I don't think I, I hope folks didn't forget, but maybe they did because the election cycle is so crazy. About, what, a week ago, it was when Twitter slapped a disclaimer on Donald Trump's tweet. Facebook's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, came out and basically wagged the finger at Twitter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Twitter, obvi- uh, Facebook obviously sees its role differently in this environment. We are just asking and demanding that they keep the bar high and substantive, as I like to say. So yes, we have a petition out there. I encourage folks to search Joe Biden Facebook petition. You will find it. And join us. Join us because it is high time that Facebook, I mean, just help. We're not asking Facebook to, to, to be a partisan player here. We're asking them, though, to you know crack down with some rules and policies on their platform and to be responsible. Yeah. And we think their current posture is wildly irresponsible. And when you, if you win power, do you, do, are you of the mind that there, these tech companies have too much influence? As a political operative, you can't ignore it, presumably. Uh, do you feel like they're too big? Well, look, I think what we would say is, frankly, look, with less than 150 days to go till election day, uh, I think it's 146 days, mm-hmm. maybe 145, Facebook and other social media companies, but specifically Facebook right now, Facebook has to protect our democracy and ensure fair elections. So we are asking Facebook to fix itself to do just that. Um, We can get into a conversation about what we will do as president about Facebook and other social media companies later. But right now, our focus is ensuring free, fair, and open elections are the cornerstone of our democracy. What happened in Georgia this week was unacceptable with the long line. I'm at the polls, the the machines that weren't working in polling places across the state, the, the, the breakdown in delivery of folks who requested absentee ballots but never got them. It's unacceptable and it has to be um, fixed and remedied before November. And so we are working with our election protection experts and folks across the country on the ground to make sure that the election is safe and that people can cast their ballots. And so we're doing that work on the state side, but Facebook also has a role to play here. And so we are asking them to, you know, do their part. Yeah, Vice President Biden talked about that, the idea that election being stolen is the scariest part of this from him. I think he said it on The Daily Show or one of the shows, one of the shows. Yeah, you know, I mean, Donald Trump is just not a good faith actor here, right? So we are going to do our part, you know, to make sure that we just beat him outright. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we got to have a little hope, Kara. Mm-hmm. Hopefully Donald Trump will, um, you know, we plan to beat him. And when we beat him, we hope that he, you know, we continue the peaceful transition of power that we have enjoyed in the United States of America since the inception of our, you know, democratic republic. Is that an actual concern? I know uh, Vice President Biden brought that up. And I've I've made scenarios where he starts tweeting about 
insurrection and things like that. Uh, saying I was more focused on what is Twitter going to do when if he if he ever started doing that. Are you seriously worried about that? Well, what I am worried about, I mean, look, Vice President Biden noted that, yes, that's something he's worried about. Something he's also spoken about that he's concerned Mm -hmm. about is the rampant voter suppression efforts of not just the misinformation and disinformation that's out there from foreign actors, but our Republican friends who are are currently being very vocal about their intention to trample on the on the on the right to vote of many folks across the country. And we have to be vigilant. I mean, I saw that Republicans were sending 50,000, they were enlisting 50,000 poll watchers, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, this feels like an intimidation tactic, right? You know, this, you know, closing down polling places. We have to make sure when we say free, fair elections, we're just not talking about for Democrats. We're talking about for everyone. And Donald Trump, I mean, Republicans are saying the quiet part out loud. If voter turnout is up, they don't think they will do well. Donald Trump has repeatedly tweeted this. So we have to be vigilant about protecting every American's right to cast their ballot this November. All right. I want to. I need to finish up. I know you've got to go and, and be on CNN and pundit away. But um, when no you're, pundit, when, I am a spokesperson no, now. A spokesperson. <laughs> okay. If you had to say to people, you know, this book is about how you speak truth to power. What do you think are the key attributes that you've found in your in your uh, in your life so far? What do you think is critically important about speaking up? Because ultimately you don't want to say shut up to people. You want to have conversations. You want to have conversations. The era we're in right now is so not conversational. Tell me what you think is really important when you do speak truth to power. I'm going to let go of the shut up part, but although I like it quite a bit. Look, I write about this in the book about being a radical revolutionary. And there are some traits of radical revolutionaries. And when I say Radical revolutionary is not about like being an activist and taking your sign and going down to the dying, mm-hmm. but it's how can you affect change in your everyday space and place? And so some traits of being a radical revolutionary in the spirit of folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And you, Kara, you are a radical revolutionary. You <laughs> are affecting change in your everyday space and place. Radical revolutionaries have to be willing to take risks. Nothing changes without being willing to take a risk. They also have to be willing to stand in the gap for someone else. That means um, sometimes physically, but oftentimes uh, proverbially in the boardroom, in the classroom, in the office. You know, are you letting that crude joke slide? Are you suggesting that you spend the money elsewhere, that we redirect the funds, that we bring a new person on the board, that we think um, more expansively about our quote unquote engagement? Um, They radical revolutionaries are willing to take on their adversaries as well as their allies. Many of us are very ready to um, take on the people that we don't think think like us, the folks who, who are different from us. But we are not as many of us are willing to take on our our, our friends or our coworker that we really like, our sorority sister, our fraternity brother. And much like Dr. King um, challenged the folks that helped with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, turned around and told them that this war in Vietnam basically is not it. And he challenged them and he stood up and he fought for fair housing and he fought for eradication of the slums. And the same folks that just that helped pass the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act could not be bothered and would not be bothered with those conversations. Dr. King, there were allies of Dr. King that told him that, well, why don't you just wait patiently? Why don't you just, these are the same people that helped you. What do we say now? Why are we eating our own? We have to be willing to push against our allies or our accomplices in order to uh, see things change in our communities, in our classrooms, in our boardrooms, wherever else. So those are a few tenets of radical revolutionaries 
that I would say that's about the book. And lastly, last question. If you're talking to a, a young girl, I, a, a young woman of color right now protesting, what is your message to her? Or my white sons who went down to the protest. Look, my talk. For these young people who are out in the streets, your voices are changing things. But make no mistake, protest without... Um, without action at the ballot box will not yield you lasting results. The protesters in Washington, D.C., where I live, they went to the White House. They they marched, they rallied, they marched down 16th Street, what is now Black, Black Lives Matter Plaza now, and they were rallying outside of the White House. They didn't go to the Wilson Building. They didn't go to the Department of Justice. They went to the White House. Why? Because the White House is important. Who the president is matters. Who the president appoints matters. Who our mayors and our governors are, they matter. And so your your protests, your raising your voices are absolutely changing things. I applaud people who have decided to, in some cases, put their bodies on the line and lift their voices for this moment. But the work does not stop at the protests. We have to galvanize and organize at the ballot box so then we can get leadership in office that will listen to us, that is sympathetic to our plight, and that we can help hold accountable. I promise you, Joe Biden is a leader you can hold accountable. But none of the change that we are talking about happens if Donald Trump gets another four years. I cannot take another four years of the last four to seven days. And I refuse to do so, which is why I'm going to do the work and I encourage other people to do so as well. All right, Simone, we really appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you online? You can find me at Simone D. Sanders, Simone with a Y, on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. Thank you, Simone, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. And my producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you liked this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.